Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. It's been a little while since my last episode. My father passed away, and I've been busy working on a few scientific articles. I do plan on inviting more guests to the show, so stay tuned for upcoming episodes. Remember that on the podcast, you'll hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I am a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Carlos Gevers, but... Before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. If you'd like to leave an audio review that I might include on a future episode, just connect on Facebook or send me an email. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website by making a donation. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Carlos Gevers. Carlos Gevers is a second-generation chiropractor. He graduated from Life Chiropractic College West in 2003 as valedictorian and the recipient of the Clinical Excellence Citation Award. After practicing for a few years in Spain and France, he was instrumental in the opening of the Madrid College of Chiropractic, where he still lectures. His contributions at the MCC were mostly related to the clinical sciences. In parallel, he served for seven years as the president of the Spanish Chiropractic Association, being involved in the chiropractic politics and policy at the national and international level. In 2018, he decided to switch gears and take a completely new path in the research arena. He started his PhD in pain neurosciences at UQTR, University of Montreal joint program under the supervision of Dr. Matthew Pichet. Uh, His PhD studies are partially funded by a prestigious grant from the government of Quebec. His line of research and his first publications are mostly focused on mechanisms of spinal manipulation, particularly as they relate to central sensitization and neuroinflammation. These two phenomena seem to be strongly implicated in the development of chronic pain syndrome and other conditions. Well, Dr. Gevers, uh, thank you so much for coming on to the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thank you very much, Dean. It's truly my honor. Yeah, so as I like to start these uh, interviews, uh, normally... um, would you mind telling us how you became interested in first becoming a chiropractor? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think I think I had it easy because uh, my dad was a chiropractor, as uh, as you mentioned before. Uh, my father was one of the first chiropractors to uh, come into practice in Spain in the seventies. He was a fr- he was a Belgian uh, national and um, went to study at Davenport, Iowa. Graduated in 73 and then uh, moved on to Spain, which was uh, still a dictatorship back then under Franco. And when he moved here, I think there were maybe three chiropractors at the time, but uh, there wasn't, for example, a national association or anything. 
so my, my dad started a practice in Madrid uh, in 1974, which became pretty, pretty big uh, rather quickly. And then he went on to be, become the first president of the Spanish Chiropractic Association. So I know this is not about him, it's about me, but I think, uh, you know, his influence is, is huge. It's huge on me. And um, I got to say, uh, two of my sisters are chiropractors as well. So we, we pretty much lived chiropractic since, uh, since we were kids, uh, very early. For example, the, the first meeting of the Spanish Chiropractic Association uh, took place in my, in my living room. <laughs> I must say, you know, that was quite unique. I actually do remember that. Uh, he was a huge influence. Um, I didn't want to become a chiropractor at first. I think as many teenagers, I just wanted to do the opposite, uh, the opposite that my dad, you know, showed me or, uh, or that my dad seemed to want from me. So I, I, I rather resisted. But um, my older sister, Evelyn, she went on to uh, start her uh, uh, chiropractic studies in, uh, in Life West as well. And I, I saw her so motivated, so enthusiastic about her career that uh, that's actually what really made me, uh, I think, grow up and decide, okay, you don't have to do the opposite as your father to be happy, <laughs> you know, which was my, my motto as a, as a teenager. And that's, that's pretty much it. That's, that's what got me into chiropractic, my family. Yeah, that's awesome. I just a, a quick uh, story from my end too. Um, my I was celebrating my dad's uh, uh, life here recently. I, I had a trip back to Canada, and uh, it made me reflect a lot about his career and uh, whatnot. And and since you brought up uh, family, he he was a psychologist, and uh, I told myself I'm never going to get into that. And you know. Uh, and turns out that's what I got my PhD in psychology. So <laughs> I know wow. the whole family thing. My, my brother's a chiropractor as well. So yeah, it's, that, that's awesome. So how did you get from, uh, this first association meeting in your living room then to, uh, to chiropractic school? And then tell me about that journey a little bit, uh, into practice and then, and all, all these other cool things you've been up to. Yeah, uh, I I like to reflect on those times. Those were uh, happy times, uh, very very happy. I I really I must say that my father never really pushed us uh, to become chiropractors, and uh, he, he we could see that that was something that uh, he would love, but but he never tried to get us uh, follow a specific career path. So when I went to chiropractic college, uh, I really discovered the profession that uh, that I didn't know back then. I my father had always practiced as a uh, he was a Gunstead, very classic and we could say straight practitioner, but you know a very very ethical one too. So he he definitely set an example, but it was also something that um, was not uh, what I would have wanted for for my life. And when I went to chiropractic school, what what I really enjoyed was a uh, all the neurology that uh, was behind uh, the mechanisms that at the time, you know, in the early 2000s, we were starting to understand a bit more of the, the activation of the mechanoreceptors during uh, the spinal manipulation and how that activation of mechanoreceptors could get also an impact on different parts of the nervous system. So I, I got very quickly involved in, uh, for example, uh, I became the president of the neurology club that... Uh, was not a thing back then. 
So I'm um, really interested in mechanisms, in neurology, in neuroscience. But uh, as soon as I, as I moved to Spain, you know how it goes. Yeah, Clinical practice can get very, it can really get overwhelming in a good and in a bad sense. Uh, you get good response from patients. You can make a, a good living out of it. And, and you feel like you're doing something useful for, uh, for society. So I, I was really focused on practicing for a few years. I, I opened up a practice with my sister in Madrid. We were working in one of my dad's practice he had in the north of Spain, in Bilbao. And then I, I also moved to France uh, to practice a bit, but that was that's another story. It's related to uh, to a woman that I met back at the time, <laughs> which is you know often the case. So I also practiced in the French Alps for a couple of years. Uh, that was also very very interesting. And um, it wasn't until until then that um, th- there was no chiropractic education in Spain. We're talking two thousand six. Uh, but at that time, uh, the first uh, talks that um, seemed to be getting somewhere with a university uh, is the place where I'm currently still lecturing in uh, in Madrid. They they seem to be uh, to be reaching a point where uh, there was going to be a chiropractic program starting in Spain, uh, which it uh, ended up happening in 2007. At that time, I was in France, uh, but I was. Um, very, very interested in being able to uh, to contribute. So I decided to move back to Spain and I contribute to the project from the early beginning, uh, slowly finding uh, finding my my place where I could also uh, contribute teaching. I was also doing some of the administration necessary for the opening of the, of the school. And that also got me into politics because uh, obviously the Spanish Chiropractic Association was instrumental in the opening of the of the college. Uh, you need resources, uh, uh, people who can teach, uh, not just chiropractors, obviously, mostly non-chiropractors, I would say. And you need a lot of uh, economical resources. So I, I also got involved and uh, was elected secretary of the Spanish Association also in 2007 when I, when I started um I started also teaching in the first cohort of chiropractors in Spain. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> it is a lot of stuff. I, I was very young too. You know, when I reflect back, I was 26, 27 and like, wow, I was really a kid. And I, I thought I wasn't, but <laughs> now so, looking back. So you, You've got this interest in neurology. You're you're teaching. You're involved in politics. So what what propels you from that point to get involved in research? It seems like your plate is kind of full. Yeah, you're right. And um, I honestly don't I honestly don't know how fun time. But uh, you know the thing is that uh, I think for uh, some of the listeners that may not know, chiropractic is not regulated in Spain. Um, it's uh, obviously not illegal. There's just nothing that regulates chiropractic uh, to this day. There are two chiropractic education programs in Madrid and Barcelona. None of them are recognized by the Spanish government, although they both have uh, CC accreditation. So it's quite a special situation, um, which means that everything is very entangled here. Like, uh, okay, you want to teach? Yes, well, you must, you must uh, get involved with politics because uh, there are... Regulation of the profession depends uh, first on the regulation of the chiropractic education. So this is also, I think, one of the reasons why, you know, I had so much in my plate. I, I think I had the capacity and definitely the, the energy to, to help. But 
as I was progressing, as the program was progressing, we got our first accreditation in 2020, 2012, actually. In 2012, we got the first accreditation. Then we got reaccredited in 2015. So it, it seems like the program in Madrid was uh, getting established, but I felt like I was getting stuck. I was teaching, but I was not uh, developing my own knowledge. I was not growing as a, as a lecturer, as, a, as an instructor. And uh, that's when I realized that, you know, I had to follow the classical, maybe, I don't know if the tenure track path, but, but I had to follow the classical <laughs> path that, that you need to follow in order to become a, a professor or, or at least an academic. You know, we had to do it in, a, in an informal way uh, because one of, the, one of the barriers that we have in Spain, we, I cannot uh, undertake a PhD program here because my diploma is worth nothing, uh, pretty much. I was able to get into a master's. Uh, so I took a master's of neuroscience program in uh, 2012. They accepted me into that program. I, I had my dissertation. I passed it. But then I, I tried very hard to get into a PhD program, uh, but they rejected me based on the fact that my undergrad training is, um, is not recognized. So it's as if I hadn't uh, taken any undergrad training. Hmm. So eventually I realized, okay, I, I need to find a way outside of Spain that I can continue uh, training, that I can, uh, I can become an academic and, and I can not just teach, but also uh, create uh, knowledge, contribute to uh, knowledge production and, and become a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that's really fascinating. I had no idea about the, you know, your your issue trying to get into a PhD program there in Spain. Wow, that's uh that's really uh fascinating. And and then also just the, you know, the struggle of uh I don't know if struggle necessarily, but the challenge, let's say, of of trying to get a PhD outside of your own country. Yeah, so mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about that. How how did you get to UQTR, and uh, and what's it like? Uh, I, I'm also interested if you're still in practice too, as you're trying to do all this stuff. Well, <laughs> you know, just telling these uh, stories, I I feel exhausted already. <laughs> like, <laughs> how the heck am I doing this? But, uh, so I just turned 40 last year, and I think, you know, I was able to do it because I was younger, but I'm getting to a point where I'm, uh, I am actually at the point where I'm making choices. So um, so let me let me rewind a little bit. Uh, so w I was looking for uh, options to uh, uh, undertake a PhD program. We had a collaboration with a, a professor from uh, RMIT in Australia, uh, uh, Dr. Michael Lazari. He's a chiropractor over there, Australian chiropractor. So uh, we collaborated with him and the University of Sevilla in the south of Spain uh, for a project um, with uh, chiropractic and podiatry uh, treatment uh, for uh, low back pain. And uh, he was actually the one to mention me, okay, uh, you know, maybe you should actually get a PhD and, and this is the way for you to go and, and become a, an academic. Um, I explored the possibility of Australia, but uh, funding was not easy at the time. So... Um, what happened is that uh, UQTR and the Madrid College uh, signed an agreement right around that time. I think it was to 2017, an agreement for uh, exchange of uh, both students and faculty. And uh, talking to um, who is now the person who is now my, my co-supervisor, we found that this could be a way for me to, uh, to undertake a PhD program uh, in Quebec. 
So I interviewed, I, I was interviewed by uh, my current supervisor, uh, Professor Mathieu Pichet, and uh, he was uh, kind enough to uh, accept me in his lab after I, I interviewed, uh, I got an interview with him. And uh, we started moving everything so that I could go to, um, to Canada when I wasn't teaching here. That means um, around three months during, during the summer and maybe two more months, uh, for example, during uh, spring break, uh, Christmas break. And uh, I've been doing that since 2018. Uh, unfortunately, something happened in 2020. Uh, I don't know if you heard of it, the coronavirus pandemic. <laughs> Never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, I wish, right? <laughs> So uh, that made it a bit more difficult, and I what we we had to rearrange everything. And, and uh, I've been doing actually all my data collection in Spain since, and I, I haven't been back to Canada for uh, longer periods since the pandemic. But now that uh, almost all my projects are finished, uh, I am ready to move over there, uh, write my thesis, defend hopefully um, next summer. And I'm uh, actually I'm currently in search uh, for a postdoc in. Uh, in Montreal, so uh, this is where this is where I am right now. Yeah, that's and actually, let me also answer another of your questions. I, yeah, yeah. I am still seeing patients. I am still seeing patients because, as uh, you may know, uh, academia doesn't doesn't pay very very well. So uh, I am still in practice. I mostly do it uh, with. Uh, I, I mostly see patients that I have seen for years, just um, as part of uh, their maintenance care. Or you know their their chronic uh, conditions. Um, I do enjoy it, and I think it's necessary. But if I'm very honest, uh, it's also an important an important part of uh, of the income that I'm that I'm getting at the end of the month. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Uh, and and I think a lot of researchers end up having you know multiple interests: uh, teaching, you know, doing you know seminars, continuing education, this sort of thing. Um, there, and there's lots of avenues and maybe we can d explore that uh, a little bit later when we give some advice to, you know, people that may be interested in research as well, but mm -hmm. let's, let's get into, uh, some of your studies now. Um, you've done a lot of, uh, cool work on the mechanisms of spinal manipulation, various other topics. I'm excited to, to talk about all these different studies and, uh, you know, the first one that we can talk about. I think might lead us uh, down the pathway of talking about the other studies as well. The first one is uh, neurophysiological mechanisms of chiropractic spinal manipulation for spine pain. So, you know, most, most people, I think all over the world probably know chiropractors for spine and, uh, and they consider us when they have pain. Uh, I'd love them to come in for performance and all sorts of other things, but uh, pain is definitely the the main driver for why people come in and so if you could lead us through this paper um and i i think you've done it in a very fascinating way uh one that i i particularly like and that is that in the paper you're classifying pain relief by different mechanisms and so i'll just briefly cover these and and maybe you can uh, talk about them in a little bit more detail but uh Different mechanisms, including uh, pain relief from peripheral mechanisms, the spinal cord, 
supraspinal and also placebo mechanisms. Also a nice touch there. Uh, so I think it would be beneficial for chiropractors and patients, whoever else is listening, if you could summarize some of these key points within each of the ways that you've classified this pain relief. Mm, thanks very much for uh, those comments, Dean. That's very kind of you. This is a, it's a paper that's very dear to me because uh, um, especially during the time that we were uh, uh, unable to uh, do much uh, testing, I dedicated a lot of time and, and, and it is actually, a, it, it's a, a great work of, of learning when you're doing a review like this. This is my first attempt to a, a narrative review. It's, it's not a systematic review to start with, but um, we thought that this was a, a more appropriate design and so did the reviewers so that we could tell what has been published, not in a systematic way, but, but choosing specific topics and and uh, this is one of the keys that you mentioned right how how can we how can we try to understand uh, what is happening when somebody is getting a chiropractic adjustment or a manipulation uh, that leads them to feel less pain so when we're looking at the evidence um, there's you know these recurrent topics uh, kept coming uh, so there are things that we can measure in the periphery uh, that we classify as peripheral mechanisms. Uh, by the periphery, usually we mean, um, you know, for example, serum samples. So something that you can measure in the blood. You don't really know where um, <clears throat> the mechanism is taking place, where the effect is happening. Sorry. But um, you can definitely say that there is something uh, happening to peripheral biomarkers. Uh, when we're looking at peripheral biomarkers, we found that there's there's a lot of literature, but uh, not always very consistent. For example, there's a lot of literature on um, cortisol changes after a spinal manipulation. But uh, some of them seem, seem to uh, suggest that cortisol increases. Some suggest that cortisol decreases. We don't know if maybe those changes are related to um, a non-specific effect due to the fact that, for example, uh, when we get a neck manipulation you can have a, <clears throat> an acute um, perception of, uh, of danger. Uh, so you have an, a, stress, a stress response that could increase your cortisol levels. And this could contribute to pain relief, but um, that wasn't always consistent to the responses uh, found in, the, in all the studies. So I, I don't think we could say that we know what happens with uh, hormones and in particular cortisol uh, after spinal manipulation and, and whether they contribute or not to, to pain relief. We did find a few studies that looked at uh, two things that we related, um, cytokines and chemokines that are uh, substances that are released by the immune, systems, immune system and uh, they seem to regulate uh, in the studies that were uh, linked to spinal manipulation, they seem to regulate the inflammatory response. And also some studies, both animal and human studies, that, that found um, changes in uh, reactive oxygen species. So... Uh, what does this mean? It was a bit hard for me to understand, but it seems like uh, through the spinal manipulation, there is a decrease in peripheral oxidation. And how could this happen? We related that to inflammation. We know that inflammatory processes lead to increase uh, in peripheral oxidation. So we believe that these two topics are probably related. And we don't know the exact mechanisms that begin this, but we can measure in the periphery uh, changes that tend to be uh, anti-inflammatory after spinal manipulation. So I hope 
you know, I made this somewhat clear. It seems like we could measure something something in the periphery suggesting that the manipulation leads to less inflammation and also more pro-inflammatory, sorry, more uh, less pro-inflammatory responses. So overall, reducing, uh, reducing the inflammatory response. Um, but, you know, these, these were all uh, usually small studies, uh, some of them in animals, so we can't really extrapolate that to humans. Some of them were both in animals and in humans. I think it's still early to uh, draw conclusions there. Uh, but what we found more interestingly, interesting, uh, as you were mentioning, we, we divided in mechanisms in the periphery, and the, the, the biggest uh, section of the paper was related to mechanisms uh, in the spinal cord. And, uh, and it seems that uh, most um, changes that are related to uh, pain relief after spinal manipulation act through the spinal cord. This is, um, this is where most of the evidence uh, is pointing. Uh, do you want me to keep going or do you have a specific Yeah, example? no, yeah. I, that, I mean, that was one of my questions uh, because I think, uh, you know, when I, when I teach continuing ed and, and or I'm a participant in continuing ed, I get the sense of, you know, there, we get all these, we'll say instructors that say, well, you know, we adjust and then it goes up to the brain and they draw all these pathways and talk about chemicals and things. And I think to myself, okay. Yeah, some of those seem like they're, those are the neuroanatomical pathways for sure. But where's mm -hmm. the evidence, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. One, of, one of the reasons is it's very hard to measure, you know? It's really, especially in the human, it's very, very hard to measure. Exactly, exactly. So that, that's, that's all I was going to say. And, um, and I'm glad you mentioned that, yeah, the, the strongest evidence or the most evidence we'll say uh, happens to be for the spinal cord. So yeah, please, please tell us about the cord. So um, I think, I don't know if I could say it's the strongest evidence, but definitely the, the largest volume of evidence because uh, okay. there are um, spinal mechanisms that can be, let's say, easily measured uh, in humans. Um, you know, one of the mechanisms that has been measured uh, repeatedly uh, by the team of uh, Bialowski, Bialowski uh, in uh, Florida that you may be familiar with. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm sure you are, actually, Bialowski and Bishop, uh -huh. but also from the lab of my supervisor uh, in a paper on uh, 2017 um, is the temporal summation. So uh, the temporal summation of pain um, can is, is a phenomenon that is known to happen in the dorsal, corn, uh, dorsal horn oh, sorry, of the spinal cord. We know that uh, when you um, induce uh, a train of stimulation and you compare it with a single stimulation, this tends to uh, create uh, either an enhanced response, pain response, or an enhanced uh, pain perception. And uh, from animal studies, uh, we think that this uh, happens because uh, C-fibers have this uh, intrinsic property uh, where they, they summate on the cord and, and it amplifies uh, the message. So um, you, can, uh, you can test for a temporal summation by using, for example, repeated trains of electrical stimulation and compare um, what this provokes to a single stimulation, right? So you can, you can see how uh, a person reacts or uh, what intensity of pain he or she feels if you have one single stimulation and compare that to multiple stimulations uh, at the same level, for example, with uh, electrical stimulation, but you can also do it with thermal stimulation using a thermode. Uh, 
And there's a few studies that suggest that um, spinal manipulation, uh, rather than decreasing uh, a single thermal stimulus or a single uh, electrical stimulus, it acts by decreasing the temporal summation of those stimuli. And uh, we know that this is something that most likely happens, as I was telling you, in the dorsal horn of the cord. So, you know, there's there's about, you know, five, six uh, good papers uh, that uh, we can refer to uh, in that sense. Um, and I think I think these are important for uh, our listeners to, uh, to, to be aware of. Um, and apart from that, uh, there's a, a few papers that uh, have been looking mostly at uh, pressure pain thresholds that you can easily measure with an algometer. And uh, they've measured changes in pressure pain thresholds before and after spinal manipulation uh, in the same segment of spinal manipulation was applied. So uh, when we're talking about the same segment, is either uh, right by the spinous process, but also in the same dermatome. And uh, there's actually quite a large group of uh, Spanish uh, uh, investigators. Uh, one of the main ones is uh, Fernández de las Peñas. Uh, and they've uh, reproduced uh, these findings uh, in the myotome, in the dermatome, uh, mostly uh, addressed at the cervical spine. So when we see a change that uh, seems to be seems to be specific to the segment, you can also assume that the changes are happening in the spinal cord, in the same uh, segment of the spinal cord. However, you know this is what this is what we found, and this is what we uh, concluded in in our in our uh, review that uh, there seem to be uh, segmental changes after spinal manipulation uh, in the spinal cord, mostly related to the temporal summation, so likely related to the inhibition of those sinusceptive uh, fibers. But this is currently a, a very important debate. Uh, I don't know if you've read, there's, there was a very recent uh, review by uh, Nim, Casper Nim, and uh, Scientific Reports uh, 2021, Oh, uh, yes, about the uh, location. Uh, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, in this paper, they were looking at uh, whether the effect of a spinal manipulation uh, was different when you apply it at what they call the candidate site versus the non-candidate site. So like, you know, are we really specific? And uh, they concluded from those papers that the segment of application didn't matter. Um this is in contrast to what was found by uh, another review that, that we referred to in our paper and, and by the conclusions in our paper. Uh, that review, if I'm not mistaken, was published by Honoré, Margot Honoré, in uh, 2018, I think, in the Chiropractic and Manual Therapies. They concluded that, you know, when we manipulate a patient, uh, the changes in pressure pain thresholds specifically were happening uh, at the same segment of application. And those were the strongest uh, effect sizes that they found. You know, Carlos, I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, I was just teaching a continuing ed course last night and, and I reviewed a couple of uh, animal papers and mm -hmm. in the, the literature on cats, um, it seems that, um, you know, they adjusted L6, I think in these two papers, which were the target vertebra. And then mm -hmm. they adjusted L5 or L4 as well as L7, and they were specifically looking at the type 1A sensory neuron, so mm -hmm. um, coming from a muscle spindle. And what they found was that the target did matter, that uh, they 
at least from a neurophysiologic perspective, mm -hmm. that it stimulated the type 1A sensory neurons a heck of a lot more than at a non-target location. Uh, and I wonder if some of what we're seeing here, um, you know, is uh, difficult, as you said, to, to get uh, the effect in humans or to be able to at least study or, or quantify this type of effect versus when you do a little bit more of a, a classical, let's say, mechanistic animal study, we're seeing larger effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the work by uh, Dr. Reed, right? Dr. Exactly. Reed. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Fascinating. I love that. The thing is, you know, I love mechanisms, but, you know, uh, is this mechanism, first of all, is the stimulation of muscle spindles relevant clinically? Uh, we still don't know. Uh, obviously, right. we have, like you were saying before, the, the you know, neuroanatomical pathways that, you know, could give some plausibility, but, but we don't know if it's any, uh, if it has any clinical relevance. Just like we also don't know if pressure pain threshold changes, for example, or temp uh, changes in temporal summation, uh, we don't know yet if, if those changes uh, that seem to be induced by spinal manipulation have any clinical relevance. So it's not just difficult to uh, translocate to humans, but it's also very difficult to to know if if there is a, uh, if if it has any any impact on on clinical outcomes. Actually, there's another cool paper by uh, by Neem Casper uh, Neem also uh, also on scientific reports. This was 2020, and I found this very interesting uh, in contrast to their uh, system to their systematic review because. They found that uh, doing uh, the adjustment, the manipulation on the most uh, sensitive segment as measured with an algometer didn't change the clinical outcomes. So that's exactly what we're talking about. But uh, it did have uh, a specific impact on the changes in pressure pain thresholds as opposed to uh, doing the adjustment uh, elsewhere. So what they concluded is that the neurophysiological effects seem to be segment specific. But the clinical effects did not seem to be segment-specific, which is uh, puzzling, you know, to say the yeah, least. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, for um, sure. You know, that's something we couldn't answer in our review. You know, it seems that, you know, the, the, the adjustment, uh, the manipulation works through segmental mechanisms. But, you know, how relevant are those mechanisms for uh, patient uh, pain relief? Because also we were reviewing specifically for this study some of the studies use clinical populations, but they were interested in mechanisms. So we can consider that this is a review of basic science studies, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> I will definitely need to get to the supraspinal and placebo and, and wrap this paper up. But uh, I just want to throw in some of, uh, some of the studies that my colleagues and I have been looking at we we're actually not interested necessarily well we are interested in the mechanisms but we're mm -hmm. looking simply at the behavioral outcomes you know what what mm -hmm. do we observe uh if we adjust this or that um is there a difference between adjusting one segment versus another segment on behavior let's say balance or postural stability something like that and uh, so we're, we're noticing changes depending on, on where and what, let's say, upper extremities versus lower extremities, mm -hmm. uh, some of the studies that, that we've done. And so you're right. There are so many different angles to, to get at this. Um, somewhere in there, the clinical outcome obviously is important to the patient. Uh, 
pain relief, as we're talking about in this particular paper. But beha- other behaviors uh, also, I think, are important there. So it, it's, it's um, wow, I, there's so many ways, yeah, that, like I said, uh, to, to come and approach all of these issues. The neurophysiology has got to be important at some level. Uh, but the translation into clinical practice and what the patient gets out of it is has got to be where it's at. And uh, hmm, I, yeah, I don't know. What what are your thoughts <laughs> on that? You know, I'm I'm going to tell you something. I I read this morning on Twitter. Uh, you know, it, it's a it's a physio that I follow that I I really like. I really enjoy uh, what he posts. But you know, very critical of manual therapy. And he was talking this morning about uh, what he called mechanisms uh, masturbation. <laughs> so, you know, how uh, many researchers we, we like to just enjoy and, and uh, try to unveil mechanisms that may not be clinically uh, relevant. And I agree in a part, but I, I strongly disagree in another part because until we don't understand the mechanisms, it's going to be very hard to understand which effects are specific and and which effects are not. Uh, Also, if we don't understand the mechanisms, it's hard to even design a placebo because when we know how something works, you can make sure that whatever that thing is doing to work is not part of the sham intervention. But so far, we don't know. You know, uh, when we design a placebo spinal manipulation, which is also one of the things that we discuss in this review, we really don't know what are the active ingredients of spinal manipulation that should not be part of it. For example, there are papers that uh, seem to suggest that there's, you know, the cavitation has no impact whatsoever. So, you know, that doesn't seem to be an active ingredient. But for patients, it seems to be very important. So if cavitation is present or not, is that going to change uh, the placebo perception? For example, you know, I'm just talking about something that that, that is, uh, you know, super common in clinical practice. You know, if, if it doesn't pop, the patient's like, oh, but, uh, you know, you didn't, you didn't get it to move. So I, I don't agree with him. I, I think there is a lot of, uh, you know, in science in general, uh, mechanism, onanism, we could say. But uh, I think this is so necessary for interventions that, that we're just starting to understand how they may work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and once you see the, you know, in our research, once you see the behavior, I mean, we're always trying to link it to mechanisms uh, for sure. And so it's just not the type of research that I've gotten into. That's why I'm so fascinated by it because I'm trying to understand because then if I understand the mechanisms, then to me, uh, the behavior should be sort of a natural expression of that. Mm -hmm. It should follow. It should. Yeah. 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 So this is an awesome discussion. Um, so let's, if if you can tell us about the the other two components of this paper, the supraspinal and then placebo. I think they're very related because you know everything, uh, let's say above the cord, uh, is uh, supraspinal, but also many of the placebo mechanisms, at least that we know of, seem to act from uh, supraspinal levels and down, no, from top down mechanisms. Um, I think. I really am fascinated by the the research looking at uh, supraspinal uh, changes after uh, spinal manipulation. I don't know if you've seen some of the papers we reviewed by uh, Ellingsen, for example, or uh, Weber. Uh, Carl, I think is his first name. Oh, Weber. Ken Weber, chiropractor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. From Stanford. 
Yes. Yeah. Great, fascinating stuff. Uh, the thing is that, you know, none of these studies can conclude that the changes they see in the brain are the direct consequence of a spinal manipulation on the brain. But rather, you know, it, it could be an indirect effect of a spinal manipulation changing uh, nociceptive transmission, even as far down as the cord or, or even in the periphery. So if you change the ascending pathways, you will change the, the reactions and, and the brain areas that are activated. So we can't really conclude that there's any mechanism that's happening, uh, you know, let's say above C1. We can't really, at least for, for pain relief, it doesn't seem like. There's also a, a review uh, that, that concluded that, that we, we mentioned in a study. I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry for the first author. I forgot, uh, I think, her name. Uh, I know Charlotte Leboeuf is in that, in that uh, review. Uh, they were reviewing uh, functional neurology and, you know. Oh, yes, I remember that paper. Yep. Yeah. So I, I don't think we can conclude that as far as much as I wanted to find something like that, because uh, I did uh, I, I, I did do the um, uh, carry postgraduate training. Uh, I did it twice. I, I found that fascinating, uh, very interesting. But, you know, there's just not the evidence to, to, to say that yet. We, we can say that there are definitely contextual effects and, and uh, expectations that are influencing our outcomes. Uh, some studies, uh, there's, a, there's an interesting design by uh, Bishop and Bialowski again, who look specifically at expectations uh, and they separated uh, changes or, you know, they, they tried to separate it, what changes could be attributed to expectations. You know, it's a big component of the placebo effect, expectations. And, and they looked at changes that could be independent of expectations. And they, they, they seem to find, they concluded that uh, after the spinal manipulation, there were changes in the temporal summation that could not be attributed to the expectations of pain relief that were reported before the experiment. So, you know, there are definitely contextual effects. And I think they're very strong in uh, any manual therapy. Uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, the contextual effects can explain all the changes that we see uh, in our patients. One, one of the main weaknesses we, we already mentioned is that, uh, you know, designing and everybody that has, has read a single paper on spinal manipulation, they know that, you know, designing a placebo spinal manipulation is very difficult. You know, it's, it's, it's very difficult because you can follow on, on the two extremes. You can have an intervention that... Uh, doesn't look at all like spinal manipulation. For example, you know, some studies have used uh, rubbing on the spine of the, of the participant, you know, like a very light effleurage massage, kind of. Uh, and other papers have used very, very similar procedures that they look so similar to spinal manipulation that they actually may carry some of the, some of the effects. So, you know, on one side, your patient is not blinded because they know what you're doing is nothing like a chiropractic adjustment. And on the other side, the patient is blinded, but your intervention may actually carry some, some effects. So it's, it's very difficult to sort out what are contextual and what are non-contextual effects. But it's not just for spinal manipulation. I, I want to say that pretty much every physical intervention, uh, massage, exercise, uh, mobilization, exercise is a big one, you know, the placebo... Um, the, the sham exercises that are used in the different trials are not very strong. It's, it's difficult. It's just difficult to do. 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Is it answering? Um, yeah. No, this is, yeah. this is excellent. Um, so then, you know, we've gone through some of the, we'll, we'll say more hardcore science uh, to, to this topic, but I'm also interested in obviously the, the translation to the chiropractor and to the patient. So one, uh, one of the ways maybe that I think would help chiropractors is to hear you, you know, you've done the research um, and, and you're a teacher as well. How, how would you translate this body of evidence, uh, these four mechanisms in talking with, with patients in your practice? I'm just kind of curious of how that conversation would go. Is there, are there some key talking points that you might use with patients to describe how, how they may achieve pain relief through, uh, an adjustment? Uh, if you could help us with that, that'd be awesome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, I think this is the million dollar question, right? <laughs> yeah. How can you really extrapolate that? Um, you know, first of all, I think what's important is uh, to acknowledge that there is a trend. Um, the trend has been there for more than 20 years now in the literature suggesting that, um, you know, our uh, adjustments and manipulations are not as specific as we thought they were. The biomechanical changes that uh, we thought or we still think we make, at least there's no, not much evidence or not very compelling to to support uh, that, you know, there are relevant biomechanical changes, uh, at least specific biomechanical changes after spinal manipulation. But I do think that there's more and more neurophysiological uh, mechanisms that uh, are unveiled. Some of them may prove to be relevant uh, for the patients uh, in the medium long term. Some of them will not. But I think it's important that we explain our patients that, uh, I th and I think this is, you know, current uh, best practice that, you know, we're not really changing very much the mechanics. We're just uh, putting an input to the system. It's a neurophysiological input. Most likely we could also talk about, uh, you know, the studies by Reed et al. that you were you were mentioning before. And, and actually there are some papers in uh, by the Nougaro and uh, a lot of papers were the, you know, were led by uh, Decaro, Martin, Martin Decaro in UQTR also where they couldn't me measure the 1A fiber activity, but they could measure the muscle, the reflex, the muscle reflex that's uh, provoked most likely by the activation of the 1A large diameter fibers. So it seems like we do activate peripheral fibers and we create a, uh, sorry, uh, a non-nociceptive input to the system and I don't know if the patients would be very interested in this now that I'm <laughs> now that I'm listening to my own words, <laughs> but but I think it is important to change the way we explain it. You know, we're not really moving. We're definitely, I think, this is quite old. We're not putting uh, bones back in place. We're uh, putting an input to the system that may have an impact on neurophysiological uh, mechanisms that are related to to pain. And the second thing I would I would maybe tell you is that. Uh, this is something that has not been done, uh, as far as I know, in chiropractic education uh, very consistently. But I think we need to introduce at least a minimum of uh, patient education, patient pain education in our interventions. 
Although, I don't know if you've seen, there was, if I'm not mistaken, a recent systematic review that found uh, no changes uh, after introducing uh, patient education, no changing in outcomes in patients with low back pain. Still, I think it's important for our patients to understand a bit better uh, the pain mechanisms, why they perceive pain, you know, so that they move away from that model where pain means there is a tissue damage clearly in their low back, that tissue damage has to be uh, detected by some type of imaging, uh, and that it has a mechanical solution, which is either, you know, putting something back in place or uh, or surgery. You know, I, th I think uh, the research that, you know, we have summarized uh, is going in this direction. No, this is not happening. However, we can affect uh, neurophysiological mechanisms of, of pain, transmission, and perception. And uh, those changes, you know, will happen at different levels that, that we still don't understand. I think it's too early to tell the patients, you know, this is what's happening with the adjustment for you. I want to, I, I want to say, especially if we now uh, move on and talk about the other uh, capsaicin paper, I, I think there is evidence suggesting that there is some degree of specificity on the uh, of the spinal manipulation we just don't know if that specificity uh changes the clinical outcomes yet we don't know that yet so sure this would sure. be another another lesson to uh that we can draw and that maybe we could tell patients like you know where i adjust you is important we don't know yet how important it is and and to what means but uh, maybe important yeah and you brought up a lot of great other issues too, you know, the sound that, uh, the cavitation or the pop that, mm -hmm. that people hear and feel, uh, when they get adjusted, uh, when you're talking about placebo, it made me think of, you know, when we interview people, motivational interviewing, and, mm -hmm. you know, we can then incorporate just the whole experience that people get when they see a chiropractor, you know, probably they're going to get exercise. We talked a little bit about exercise too, mm -hmm. um, how important that can be and, and eating well, you know, lifestyle, all the, all the things that they can do. We may not know everything yet as to how the mechanisms work, but clearly something is working and uh and how how you know couple that with all the behavioral aspects and lifestyle and and whatnot mm -hmm. um, if, if i may dean if yeah, i may uh, yeah i think you brought a very good topic like i mean a very good point uh by saying that as chiropractors if we're applying you know spinal manipulation without thinking or or introducing thoughts uh, to our patients that we're putting you know bones back in place or you know some some of that you know old uh, beliefs. Uh, we recommend them uh, exercise and, and that they stay active. And we're providing them with um, up-to-date patient education. You know, we really are, you know, front line, front line for managing any type of, not any, you know, but most types of spine care. We are obviously trained to also detect the, the ones that we cannot manage and, and we need to refer out. But, uh, you know, with these interventions, uh, we're really following most, if not all, clinical practice guidelines. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful, beautiful way to put it. Um, that's sort of what I was thinking, but I'm glad you, you stated it much more clearly than I did. So <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> okay, let's get into the, uh, the next paper, which is chiropractic spinal manipulation prevents secondary hyperalgesia induced by topical capsaicin in healthy individuals. So yeah, if you could tell us about this paper and then and then how this uh, you know is a continuation essentially of of what we've just talked about and mm -hmm. what what it may add different. 
Yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm glad to talk about this paper because um, also yesterday or maybe the day before I read on Twitter again, <laughs> uh, there's been um, on the JOSPT journal, the Journal of Orthopedics, uh, Orthopedic Sport and Physical Therapy, uh -huh. uh, they, uh, on, they have a blog and um, there was a specific blog post that was talking about, uh, you know, was it time to... Uh, to conclude or to, to assume that manual therapy was not specific at all. And they were citing this paper and a couple more papers from our lab. In my opinion, you know, if they eventually let me have a rebuttal, in my opinion, they were not interpreting uh, correctly the, our findings. So I think it's a good opportunity. Hopefully somebody would listen to this and, and maybe let me know if, if I, can, I can write a rebuttal to that. So... Um, we, were, we wanted to look uh, again at the spinal mechanisms specifically, and uh, you know, there's a line of research that my supervisor uh, Pichet has has been um, has been uh, following since uh, I would say since 2017, um, based on the hypothesis that spinal manipulation has a, has an effect or can modulate the activity of uh, C fibers, nociceptive C fibers. So in this paper, it is true there's a big limitation where it's an experimental pain model. So we are inducing experimental pain to healthy participants. And that is always a limitation, but it is also very useful to understand mechanisms and, and it's very commonly used in pain research. The pain uh, model that we use here is uh, the application of topical capsaicin. And uh, you know, most, I think uh, most of us have heard of capsaicin, but just in case, it's the active ingredient of uh, chili peppers that uh, gives it, give uh, chili peppers the, let's say, the hotness, the spiciness of it. And uh, it does so by activating a type of receptors that are called uh, TRIP-V1 trip receptors. They're also known for um, being very important for uh, thermal uh, perception. I don't know if you know this, but last year the Nobel Prize, uh, Medicine Nobel Prize was uh, given to... Uh, uh, actually the work done on the TRIP-V1 receptors, uh, the capsaicin receptors. So it is a hot topic. <laughs> no pun. Better said. Yeah. <laughs> so what we did, uh, you know, we're creating pain to these healthy participants uh, around the T5 spinous process. Uh, we chose T5 just because it was an easier, it's an easy area to uh, apply manipulation, not for any other, um, let's say, segmental reason. So we applied T5, uh, sorry, capsaicin around the T5 spinous process. Uh, we were measuring uh, brain activity. We were uh, asking the participants to rate their perception of uh, pain and unpleasantness related to capsaicin because we know that the activation of C-fibers is also related to the emotional aspects of pain like uh, unpleasantness, not just intensity. And also before and after the, uh, the application of capsaicin, we measure pressure pain thresholds, but not inside of the area of capsaicin application, but outside. We're measuring, if I remember correctly, two centimeters outside of the area. And uh, this is important because um, when you apply capsaicin, what we know that we know that there's an activation of C fibers mostly, not just C fibers, but predominantly C fibers, uh, which um, are related to these trip V1 receptors. So capsaicin activates these TRIP-V1 receptors, which activate C-fibers, and uh, these C-fibers stimulate then uh, the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, and there's some changes that happen with the summation of, uh, of these C-fibers. 
through animal models, we know that uh, this activation of C-fibers induces uh, what we call long-term potentiation. You may be familiar with uh, LTP related with uh, memory. Yes, so, yep. long-term potentiation is a uh, key in memory processes in the hippocampus. But we also know that LTP is important, long-term potentiation is important for processes related to chronic pain in the spinal cord. And uh, C-fibers uh, have been uh, strongly correlated with uh, these changes in the spinal cord. So, you know, there's a bunch of research suggesting that capsaicin can induce long-term potentiation uh, in the cord and that uh, these changes result in some uh, behavioral changes uh, in the pain perception of the participants or potentially in patients as well. What happens with uh, these changes in the cord is a phenomenon that uh, is uh, called uh, primary and secondary hyperalgesia. Uh, we were interested specifically uh, into sec in secondary hyperalgesia. So let me see if I can make this clear. So when you apply capsaicin in an area, that area becomes uh, painful. Uh, this area where you have, pl uh, have applied the capsaicin is the area of what's called the primary hyperalgesia. So that area becomes red, there is a vasodilation, and uh, we think that there is an increased perception of pain in that area due to peripheral sensitization. So the receptors become sensitized and uh, patients or participants start perceiving uh, pain where capsaicin is applied. This is similar to what happens to us when we uh, eat uh, anything that uh, has capsaicin, like chili peppers or you know, jalapenos or whatever. But what we also know is that when you apply capsaicin uh, in the skin, topic capsaicin, there is an area that develops outside of that primary hyperalgesia uh, that becomes sensitized as well. This area is the secondary hyperalgesia, the area of secondary hyperalgesia. And uh, this area becomes sensitized specifically to mechanical stimulation. So there is a mechanical hyperalgesia that develops outside. Do you think that's... Uh, I made this clear for now? Y yeah, absolutely. I, okay. I, I get it exactly. So around where you, where you put the capsaicin, that's the primary area. But just beyond that, there's an effect. And that effect mm -hmm. that, that uh, let's say, lowers your threshold to, to pain is the secondary area. Exactly, exactly. So often in uh, human models, you don't perceive pain in that secondary area. But just as you mentioned your thresholds are decreased and your sensitivity is increased. Uh, we don't know exactly in humans because you cannot measure, but from animal studies, this seems to happen because of changes in the spinal cord. Uh, these changes that I was mentioning before, summation, maybe long-term potentiation, maybe disinhibition also of uh, inhibitor interneurons, but, you know, in humans, we simply don't know. So... This area of secondary hyperalgesia, we measured it by assessing the pressure pain thresholds at the beginning of the experiment before we applied capsaicin and after the 40 minutes of uh, capsaicin application. Okay, so we could have an idea of whether those thresholds that were two centimeters outside of the capsaicin area uh, were going to change or not. And uh, this was actually our main variable of interest because we hypothesized that uh, spinal manipulation, because it could inhibit the activation of C-fibers, it could inhibit the development of secondary hyperalgesia. 
So what we found, I, I think it's very interesting to, to, to say also that we found that uh, the participants were rating their pain. And uh, yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention that uh, we uh, split our participants in four different groups. They were uh, assigned uh, randomly. One group received uh, no intervention at all for 40 minutes. So we just wanted to, uh, with this group, we wanted to assess for the non-specific effects of time, simply the passage of time. Another group received uh, spinal manipulation at T5, so the same level where capsaicin was applied and where these changes were supposed to happen. Uh, another group received spinal manipulation four segments away, T9 instead of T5. We wanted to see if any potential changes uh, were dependent on the segment of application. And then finally, another group received what we labeled the placebo manipulation. You know, it wasn't a great placebo because we used the dynamometer to apply a force that would be equivalent to spinal manipulation. But, uh, you know, uh, it was uh, at the time what uh, we found the best to see if the activation of mechanoreceptors, similar to uh, what would happen with the, with the spinal manipulation, would be responsible for, the, for that effect or not. So, you know, the first thing that we found is that it didn't matter if they received an intervention or no intervention, T5, T9, their, uh, the way they rated their uh, pain intensity related to capsaicin was not different between groups. So all participants reported pain after like around 10 minutes on average, peaked around 32 minutes, and then decreased a little bit. So their primary pain, which is the pain that they perceived from the area of capsaicin, was not affected by spinal manipulation. And, you know, we were not really sure that this would happen, but, uh, you know, it was partially expected. We were also measuring brain activity. We were measuring uh, gamma band uh, oscillations. Uh, gamma band oscillations have been, uh, you know, lately in the last 10 years, uh, have been linked to ongoing pain, both in uh, experimental pain models, for example, with capsaicin, uh, with um, capsaicin and heat also, with heat pain, uh, but also in patients with fibromyalgia and chronic back pain. You know, there is an increase in gamma band activity, mostly in the prefrontal cortex. So we were interested in this to see, okay, is this supraspinal activity change after spinal manipulation? We found no change. So uh, no change between groups, no uh, supraspinal changes. But what we found that, you know, this was our main hypothesis, and, and this is what gives sense to this paper, uh, was specifically related to the pressure pain thresholds measured before and after uh, the capsaicin, and also before and after, obviously, the interventions, because the interventions were provided uh, after 20 minutes. So the, the experiment lasted 40 minutes with capsaicin the whole time. And in the middle of the experiment, after 20 minutes, we applied the interventions for the groups receiving intervention. So what, what we found is that the participants receiving no intervention or receiving the placebo manipulation with the dynamometer that I was telling you about, both of them develop secondary hyperalgesia, which means that their pressure pain thresholds were decreased at the end of the experiment. So th this is expected, right? So you apply capsaicin and, you know, outside of the area of capsaicin, you have an area where we know your mechanical thresholds will drop. And this happened to these two groups. But what uh, is very interesting is that the groups receiving manipulation, 
both at T5 and T9, they did not develop secondary hyperalgesia. Their, uh, their thresholds didn't change significantly. Actually, for the group receiving the manipulation at T5, the thresholds even increased a tiny bit. It was not significant, but it definitely did not drop. And this is the main finding. So we can say that the groups receiving manipulation uh, did not develop secondary hyperalgesia. How did that happen? We don't know, but we hypothesize that through an inhibition of the activity of C-fibers. You know, the capsaicin was activating the C-fibers, but by applying our manipulation, we decrease that uh, activity and that summation in the spinal cord, probably. Okay, so now I have yeah. some... <laughs> Now, now I have some that was, questions. That was heavy. Yeah. yeah, no, that was heavy, but it was good uh, on the mechanism. So uh, getting back to the, the review paper, you talked about temporal summation as one of these sort of uh, uh, key variables, we'll say, at the spinal cord level. And, uh, and I'm going to do a little extrapolation here. You tell me if I go off the deep end. Uh, <laughs> but um, so if, if I understand this correctly... Uh, the adjustment or the manipulation uh, seems to modulate this temporal summation. And if, if that's true, and from what I understand, uh, this secondary hyperalgesia and subsequently central sensitization uh, may be something that uh, an adjustment or a manipulation could impact. And then... Uh, if, and then if that's true, then I'm also wondering about the gamma oscillations that you measured uh, through EEG. And I'm, and I'm wondering then if, uh, if someone comes in for care for, for weeks on, uh, on end, let's say, you know, a few weeks of adjustments or manipulations, would that gamma band change over time as you continued to modulate that temporal summation? There's two things I want to to point out. Uh, first of all, especially if my supervisor listens to this, because uh, <laughs> I need to clarify that with uh, with capsaicin, capsaicin, we can't say that we are measuring temporal summation. Okay, it's a distinct um, it's a dis distinct mechanism, but it has in common that there will be an ongoing or repeated activation of uh, of the C fibers. Uh, with the capsaicin, we do know that it is a good uh, surrogate experimental model that imitates central sensitization. So, so you were right about that part. So, uh, you know, we know that capsaicin is used as a surrogate for central sensitization. And, and it does so by, you know, repeatedly or in an ongoing fashion activating those C-fibers. So it's, it's very similar to temporal summation. We know that with central sensitization, the temporal summation is enhanced and prolonged. You know, so it's like these responses are enhanced and prolonged. And this is what happens with capsaicin. So, you know, it is somewhat related, but we weren't measuring specifically temporal summation. We weren't. Um, we could say that these, these uh, results suggest that, yeah, a spinal manipulation actually maybe could prevent the development of central sensitization. Once central sensitization is in place, you know, we would need to have maybe a longer uh, time period to, to assess this or uh, measure surrogates. You know, central sensitization is kind of a controversial topic. Not everybody in the pain community accepts that, you know, outside of the lab with animals, we can talk about central sensitization. So we're just going to assume that we're talking about 
the processes that are surrogates in the human. But, you know, in the, in the clinical population, we can measure some things that are, seem to be relevant or seem to be related to central sensitization. And it would be interesting to know if those things change specifically with, uh, with spinal manipulation. We don't know yet. We don't know yet. This, as a basic science study, suggests that this may be one of the mechanisms. But uh, it may suggest more that it could prevent that development. So, like in the transition towards uh, developing central sensitization, which is a mechanism related to chronic pain. You know, more than, uh, you know, once it's installed, can we revert it? Uh, that's that's a, a, bit a, a bit of a more difficult question. Um, also related to the gamma band oscillations, honestly, yes, our experiment was, was very short. Uh, one of the, you know, limitations that we had is that capsaicin creates a, you know, it, the reaction to capsaicin is very diverse. Uh, so for behavioral studies, it wasn't so bad, but we had a lot of uh, inter-individual variability for the gamma band oscillation. So we don't know if there could be an effect there. Uh, it would be very interesting to see this in a clinical population, which is even more diverse, honestly. But uh, it would definitely be be interesting. Uh, it's it's just difficult, you know. There's there's an important limitation, which is the fact that uh, when you're measuring uh, brain activity, the participant shouldn't move for as long as possible. So 40 minutes was the length of our experiment, which wasn't long enough, I think. Uh, but it was definitely too long for participants to, to stay without moving. And you need to be able to do the manipulation without them moving for too long also, or too much, which is also why we chose a prone uh, manipulation, you know, instead of a side posture that, uh, you know, would be very interesting for low back uh, pain uh, patients. It's tough because then you're, you're moving all the cables, you're moving the, the cap. It's, it's going to be more difficult to measure... Uh, EG activity in that case. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, yeah. Makes sense. Uh, and you know, I, I, I realize as uh scientist, we don't like to, you know, go beyond the data. I'm totally into that, but I also do like to spend some time and, and hypothesize about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what the, uh, the implications could be. And, and then it gives a uh, further ideas for, other studies that uh, certainly can be done as well. Mm. And so it, it makes me think, okay, you know, how many people with chronic back pain is central sensitization a mechanism? Is it everyone? Is it some people? How common is this central sensitization? Mm-hmm. And and if, if these uh, results that you've achieved are indicating, okay, it may not be the exact mechanism, but is it a component of a mechanism that may prevent uh, central sensitization. I mean, that's exciting to, to me. <laughs> yeah, to me, to me too. You know, maybe it's mechanistic onanism, as we were saying before. But, uh, I would take that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, that's a, it's a very good question that you're asking me because this is also a very, very hot topic currently, which is a, a, a classif- we're trying to classify low back, chronic low back pain uh, patients uh, according to mechanisms involved. Uh, there's been uh, huge efforts directed in that, uh, in that sense since, uh, I think it's been like 12 years. Uh, there's a seminal paper by Smart uh, et al. I think it's in manual therapy. 
Uh, and they've been looking at, you know, which percentage of chronic low back pain patients present characteristics that are more, um, let's say, that, that fit more into a nociceptive pain uh, in contrast to neuropathic pain and in contrast to central sensitization pain, which is uh, currently referred to as nociplastic pain. No, no, don't know if you've heard that uh, term. Yeah, I've, I've heard that, yeah. Which is, you know, it's still not perfectly defined, but it's referred to uh, a pain that may arise from plasticity uh, developed in the nociceptive system. So, you know, it's a bit what we were talking about uh, before. And um, there's been a couple of uh, large um, cohort studies uh, and then uh, a few trials also. And they seem to suggest that there's about a third of uh, patients uh, with chronic low back pain that have a a pain that can be classified under nociplastic. So I think if I remember from the top of my head, you know, the different studies go from 25 to 40% of uh, participants in those studies uh, that have, you know, these type of mechanisms likely involved. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, and, and, you know, it's also important because we're trying to subgroup these patients and maybe, maybe, those patients respond better to specific treatments like spinal manipulation if this is the way or one of the ways that spinal manipulation acts. I think that's a fantastic point. You know, one of the huge benefits of these mechanisms is exactly that. You know, how how do we classify, you know, could we classify in advance people who are going to respond really well to to chiropractic care, to exercise, to nutrition, to, you know, psychological interventions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that, that's a, that's a great way to actually think about it. I, I believe. So I'm glad you, you mentioned that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, uh, let's get into our last paper here. And this is, uh, when I saw this paper, I knew I had to have you on, uh, the podcast. I, I had already thought about having you on before, but I thought, okay, I just need to call you up or email you <laughs> and see if yeah. you'd come on. So I appreciate you talking about all these things. Uh, but this is the paper that uh, ultimately um, I saw it and I thought, I just have to have you on. So anyways, <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting, you know. Uh, so it's called the presence of tumor necrosis factor alpha in urine samples of patients with chronic low back pain undergoing chiropractic care preliminary findings from prospective cohort study. So this is uh, published in Frontiers in Integrative Neuroscience. Uh, and could you walk us through this one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you very much. I love this paper too. And, uh, you know, I, I will say to start with that methodologically is not the soundest paper, but uh, we really wanted to share these results that, you know, as the title says, they're preliminary, but, you know, they're, I think, fascinating too, because... Um, Okay, we're not the first one to look at uh, TNF-alpha, which is a cytokine. It's a pro-inflammatory cytokine. Uh, other authors have looked at TNF-alpha. Uh, there's at least two papers by uh, Theodorczyk in, in Sorry, Julita. I don't know how to pronounce. Theodorczyk Ingeyan, Ingeyan? Yep. From uh, CMCC. CMCC, yep. Which, uh, you know, whose work I really, really admire. And uh, they've been looking at TNF-alpha now for... Uh, at least 15 years, and other cytokines. So um, what we wanted to do is to see, first of all, you know, you know, going back a little bit, uh, rewinding a tiny bit, 
patients with uh, chronic pain, and specifically with chronic low back pain, uh, seem to have uh, increased level of a certain inflammatory cytokines. And uh, TNF-alpha is one of the cytokines that pops up, uh, you know, constantly. Uh, I don't think it's a biomarker only for chronic low back pain, but it could definitely serve as, you know, a biomarker for this type of chronic pain, among others. Um, so, you know, first of all, we wanted to look at uh, these neuroimmune uh, markers and see if they were elevated in patients with chronic low back pain, and also to see if these uh, markers were responsive to treatment. You know, if after receiving care, there will be any changes in uh, TNF-alpha. The thing is uh, that measuring uh, TNF-alpha in blood is uh, it's not difficult, but it's definitely more costly. Uh, there will be some patients that would not want to do it because they don't want to get blood drawn. Uh, you need a phlebotomist or a nurse uh, practitioner to do it. So, you know, we were looking into, okay, how could we do this uh, in an easier way? And uh, we found that uh, other um, or in, in other um, areas, not in pain research, uh, they, they had been looking at cytokines in urine and they correlated very well with cytokines in blood. So we decided to collect blood urines from our uh, patients that were coming to the clinic at the Madrid College here. So this is, you know, I'm talking about this paper as the first author, but uh, most of the work, the idea behind is uh, my co-supervisor, who's the last author of this paper, uh, Arancha Ortega, Ortega de Mues. She's, a, she's not a chiropractor, she's a biologist. She's a specialist in uh, kidney function. So that's why she's like, okay, urine is my thing, you know? <laughs> I know urine very well. <laughs> and, you know, we were not sure what we were going to find, but, uh, you know, as this paper shows, we found that TNF-alpha was uh, significantly elevated in, in patients uh, with chronic low back pain compared to healthy participants. We had a small sample of healthy participants. Uh, we're actually working now into increasing the number of healthy participants, but um, we also know from uh, research in uh, blood cytokines that usually TNF-alpha, if you don't have an inflammatory or a chronic condition, the levels are going to be very close to zero. So, you know, we're pretty sure that mm. chronic uh, back pain patients have increased urinary levels of TNF-alpha. And we also found that after a period of care, that was not, this was not um, a trial, it was not experimental study. We, um, you know, the patients were coming for care uh, with chronic low back pain. We uh, made the diagnosis of chronic nonspecific low back pain, and we asked them, do you want to be part of this study? We're just going to measure pain disability, and then we need a couple of urine samples. And uh, and that's it. And uh, patients were receiving uh, chiropractic care based, all of them were receiving SMT in, uh, in every visit, but some of them were also uh, receiving... Uh, patient education and, and exercise. So we're trying to measure, you know, uh, the effects of a pragmatically delivered intervention, which is chiropractic care, not specifically spinal manipulation. Although, you know, the common denominator for every intervention was spinal manipulation. And we found that, uh, you know, uh, TNF-alpha after an average of four weeks of treatment uh, was decreased uh, uh, in, uh, in the group receiving care. Uh, it was not a large sample. We had 24 participants, but uh, we have a second study uh, replicating these results where we controlled much better the care they were receiving. They were only receiving spinal manipulation and actually we're finding even stronger uh, results. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, mm. it like this is, there is an effect here that 
awesome. maybe telling us something. Hmm. So curious, uh, would has anybody checked TNF alpha in chronic back pain patients before? Yeah, 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 definitely. Okay, this okay. Is, yeah, uh, Theodorczyk in, in Jehan, they were looking at Oh, that, they have. Uh, in the urine? Uh, not in urine. We were the okay. first ones to measure it in urine. Exactly. Okay, okay. Yes. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, All yeah, right. yeah. And then, uh, how expensive are these TNF tests? Like, I'm just curious. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I might <laughs> want to start yeah, yeah, yeah. checking my own patients. I don't know. <laughs> just to so, see if it's cheap. You know, we're doing ELISA, which is, you know, it's not an expensive test. Uh, you know, we've, I think, all kind of got familiarized with the ELISA test for the antibodies, for the COVID antibodies, for example. Uh-huh. So uh, the ELISA is not expensive. We're buying a full kit. Uh, it was around 800 euros. So uh, let's say about $900 for, uh, and that kit was enough for uh, a little bit over 20 patients, 22 patients, I believe. Okay. Okay. So let's say about, you know, 40 euros uh, to run one ELISA. Okay. Uh, you know, these were done uh, in a specific lab in a hospital in Madrid uh, for research purposes, but you could get this done uh, at a commercial level very easily, very cheaply. And okay. this is one of the things that, you know, are, we're interested, like to see if there's something we could, we could use to, to predict the response, maybe to evaluate the response as well. But we need more studies, you know. Uh, so yeah, yeah. that's that's a good point. I, and I am also, you know, I actually measure my levels um, uh, before we started. I was one of the pilots and I was healthy. I had no pain and I was in zero. So like, okay, you know, at least it seems to be sensitive to uh, young, healthy <laughs> participants. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I, I wanted to bring back something that you said that the common denominator in, in all of these patients was that they, they got the adjustment or manipulation and despite, you know, that they, they had, uh, you know, exercise and all sorts of stuff that was going on. Um, so it makes me wonder, you know, if this, uh, if studies like this could represent a way to identify some of the mechanisms, uh, by which chiropractic care would, manifest its effects uh similar to what we were talking about earlier with the very first mm-hmm. study you know is is there something specific about this tnf alpha in the urine that is you know w- what exactly does that tell us is that mm-hmm. something that it, this is uh I, I guess the most direct way to interpret it is there's some sort of an inflammatory effect right anti-inflammatory effect mm-hmm. is that is that the way you would interpret it or yeah, yeah. it's um TNF-alpha is a pro-inflammatory cytokine that is also, it's the beginning of a cascade of other pro-inflammatory cytokines. So it's one of the reasons why it's important, you know, if, if you modulate TNF-alpha, other cytokines and chemokines may be modulated as well. And uh, it definitely, it's, it's related to, to inflammation, uh, so it's pro-inflammatory. We don't know exactly in what stages of... Um, of inflammation, but there's a there's very interesting work by uh, uh, Klein et al. Uh, who I think they're in Australia because the the lead uh, researcher is Paul Hodges for these studies. Okay, uh, they've been looking at uh, also different cytokines in the um, yeah, related to chronic low back pain and the transition from acute to chronic low back pain, and they seem to always conclude that TNF alpha remains elevated in patients that do not recover from acute episodes. 
Hmm. So like it could be, you know, what maintains a certain level of maybe what they call now low-grade inflammation. Maybe it's not such low-grade, but it's a term that's used also for a, for a gut uh, inflammation and, for example, uh, IBS. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, there's, there's something related there to that transition and also maybe the maintenance of that uh, inflammation and, and sensitization. Yeah. It's also important to, to know that TNF-alpha, this we cannot measure in humans right now, but in the spinal cord, uh, may induce central sensitization in animals or central sensitization-like processes. It is uh, part of the process of what is called neuroinflammation that you've probably heard of that has been related to the central sensitization. So there's quite a few ways through which... Uh, TNF-alpha may induce inflammation in the central nervous system and in the periphery. And we don't know which one uh, manipulation will target specifically. We, we yet don't know. Sure. But it, it's a starting point for sure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for sure. And, and what you said about the central sensitization, and that, that was exactly what I was thinking about was, you know, how are the mechanisms similar or different in those? It would seem... Again, I'm going to hypothesize here, but uh, if if at the spinal cord level we have perhaps a, a reduction of the you know ramping up of the volleys of information to the to the brain to say hey uh, you know we got some pain going on here, uh, and then if we're getting that at a biochemical level with TNF alpha, sort of you know leading to a cascade of mm-hmm. other inflammatory soup effects or, you know, that sort of thing, um, then maybe that is, you know, a potential mechanism by which it's working. Mm -hmm. There is fascinating work on, um, on this exactly. Uh, so for example, there is clearly it's, it's been shown there is a crosstalk between C fibers and, uh, immune cells in the periphery and in the central nervous system. So the activation of C fibers, for example, in the central nervous system activates microglial cells to release cytokines. So, you know, in a way, this is fascinating to me. It's like, okay, so this ongoing pain is also activating like an immune response, and this immune response sensitizes us, probably to protect us. But, you know, if that uh, volley, as you were saying, of nociceptive input uh, continues for whatever reasons, it may also be uh, upregulated, you know, that's probably not the right word, but like we could maintain that uh, uh, release of TNF-alpha, which could result in maybe aberrant plasticity. So, you know, where does the adjustment, you know, act here? Uh, it's still hard to figure out, but th- there's a lot suggesting that, you know, these mechanisms are targeted somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And then couple in, like you said, gut. Uh, you know, some of the stuff on gut health, uh, exercise, nutrition, all of these known to have, you know, we'll say somewhat similar mechanisms, anti-inflammatory yep. mechanisms. Yep. And then, you know, but those and those are all first line types of care, mm-hmm. uh, yep. you know, lifestyle issues. So yep. it, it really is exciting to me how we're we're getting to a point where. Uh, and, you know, I, I realize it's a preliminary study, but again, <laughs> the hypothesis that you can derive from something like this are, are all over the place. I mean, in a good way uh, yeah. to, to start looking at these uh, 
mechanisms in some more detail and be able to, you know, figure out maybe one day, you know, people come in and they pee in a cup and, uh, Hey, you're TNF alpha. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. And, uh, <laughs> Hey, based upon this, you know, we, we think this, this, that, or the other type of care, uh, or these, t- these two types of care, and you know, are going to be the best for you. Yeah. Who knows? But, uh, yeah. uh but, that's sort of the way my brain is working now is, uh, you know, we take these mechanisms uh, a few steps beyond hopefully in five, 10, 15 years and, uh, and be able to say to people, you know, with some, some degree of certainty, Hey, you know, this stuff is going to help you out. Yeah. Not just your brain. I think, uh, yeah, it, this is, this is exactly what I explained. Uh, my patients now we're still collecting urine. I like, in the future, maybe, you know, we can just uh, check your urine and see if this is suitable for you or, you know, or if maybe levels are too, too high or too low, maybe you want to have, you know, some other type of care. Uh, yeah. 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 I well, you've, uh, you've thought about it way, you had urine on the brain long before me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing, urine on the brain, but. <laughs> You're right. It, it's, it's not. When I said it, it sounded weird, but you know what yeah. I meant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what uh, what's up next for you? Uh, it sounds like some of the studies are continuing on with uh, the type of research that you've done, especially with STNF alpha. What what else is on the horizon mm-hmm. for you? So I'm now finishing a large, well, I think large for me, you know, large uh, RCT with 150 participants. Where uh, we're getting close to finish with a chronic low back pain. Uh, we're measuring some of these, some of the same things that we're, we've been talking about, uh, spinal mechanisms, you know, surrogates or behavioral surrogates of those uh, uh, via measuring pressure pain thresholds. We're also measuring more, let's say, less specific mechanisms with uh, some questionnaires uh, or maybe not less specific, but more like psychological uh, outcomes. We're measuring TNF-alpha in urine, uh, and we're using, uh, well, SMT, the old good adjustment, and we're comparing it to a validated placebo and see if these effects are specific or not. This is always a, it's a challenging thing to do, and it's scary, you know, because, uh, you know, you obviously have your hypotheses. Uh, uh, you've practiced long enough to think like, okay, what we're doing is specific enough, but, but who knows? Um, honestly, the data doesn't seem to suggest that our effects are specific or that they're very different from the, from the placebo. But that doesn't happen just for uh, manipulation. I think any intervention on pain and specifically on chronic pain, I don't think many interventions have proved or, or any at all have proved to be better than placebo, you know? So, right. And, and, you know, what? The, since you brought that up, I, I hear this all the time. Well, it's no better than placebo. Hey, placebo is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is also something that's uh, it's controversial, but I agree with you. And I think placebo is just, uh, I mean, not just. I think that uh, one of the components of placebo is uh, something that, you know, I- I'm going to maybe be crucified for this uh, by some uh, purist, very scienti- scientist, uh, uh, scientifically driven chiropractors. But I think it's also part of the chiropractic philosophy of placebo is the mechanisms of the body healing itself, you know, and if we could tap into those mechanisms... As long as, you know, what we're doing is not just doing that, uh, there's nothing wrong, uh, in my opinion. There's nothing wrong uh, by tapping into those mechanisms while also, you know, putting an input 
on the nervous system and uh, having participants or sorry patients become more active getting them some exercise getting them to understand their pain better i think the combination is actually great honestly yeah yeah and and you're right i mean there there's value in these in these words and and depending on how you you know uh define placebo but i'm with you i'm basically my my thought is i'll do whatever it takes you know eth- that's ethical and effective mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to get people better and if it involves some placebo i'm down for that <laughs> mm-hmm. so. i hear you i hear you <laughs> Well, as long as it doesn't involve urine in the brain, we're okay, fine. Okay, well, all right. Yeah, you got me there. <laughs> okay, can I retract that now? <laughs> now I'm thinking about that. <laughs> this is going to stay in the internet, you know. It, that. it will stay forever. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Oh, well. So, uh, Carlos, the goal of this podcast, uh, as you know, is to to help to motivate and assist practitioners and, and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. And I ask this uh, of all of all my guests, can you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors or students who may wish to become these future scientists? Mm, I think this is a great question. And uh, I've been thinking about it ever, ever since, you know, I knew you were going to ask me this question. So but it's hard also. I, um, I just want to encourage them to do it. I think there is such a need for uh, research to be done on, uh, on all the manual therapies. But, you know, if we're talking about specifically, you know, a, a profession, because this is a chiropractic science podcast, you know, get into the science. Get into the science, start reading the cool papers, and... Uh, Try to try to collect data if you're already practicing. Try to collect data and see how fun it is. You know, the, the truth is it's very fun, but it's also super humbling. You have to be uh, ready to accept failure, ready to accept that uh, your ideas will be challenged, and they will be. Uh, you have to be ready to to accept, that, yeah, that that you may be wrong, and and be flexible enough to to change the way you think which may eventually affect the way you, you practice. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's, it's, it's the best, I think, the best humbling uh, exercise that any you know, healthcare professional or, or actually any professional could do. I think we should all do that. So, you know, get into it from the beginning, like uh, read the papers, go to these congresses, not just, you know, seminars are fun. You can learn a lot of technique and and, you know, work with the gurus. Uh, okay, it's fun. I, I've done that. But also try to, you know, do something that's uh, intellectually challenging. And, uh, and I think it will be very rewarding. But you definitely need to, need to be aware of, you know, the amount of work that it, that it takes, you know. Not just the physical and mental work, but also the work, uh, as I was telling you before, it, it's super humbling. Have, haven't you found that too, that, you know, you get into science and, and all your, you believe some of them were super strong. You had some pillars that just crumble because the data or the, the, the science don't, don't support that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I, I really like that advice. Uh, you know, let the data go where it goes. And, uh, but you have, to ha- you have to be curious. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a, a theme that runs through throughout all of our all of our research, uh, and, and especially yours. Um, and you know, it's, it's so, 
it's so interesting and, but there are roadblocks along the way, no doubt, mm -hmm. uh, just like there are in practice, you know, so it's, it's a little bit, bit different. Uh, the education's a little bit different going through the PhD, certainly than it is clinically, yeah. but, um, you know, I think for some people, some people are interested in that and that's really who I'm trying to get out to. Uh, we absolutely need the practitioners or who are there in practice all day, every day, you know, taking care of patients. We need those people. Of course. Um, and uh, so, but I'm hoping to, we'll say convert or get some people at least interested in, in contributing, even if it's from their practice, that's fine too. That, that'd be awesome. You know, write up some case studies. Um, we definitely need that type of data too. There's so much out there that we could use. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I I I read all these, you know, as many case studies as I can, and uh, that that helps me formulate my next studies. You know, so uh, yeah. we need we need chiropractors in practice to to be able to do this and get interested as well. So, Carlos, thanks for such a. Uh, let me let great. me just add something. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. I think you nailed it. You know, I realize that you know I I didn't really motivate, uh, but I think it's very related to where I am right now. And I think you know, last year PhD student is like you only see roadblocks. You know, it seems like it never ends. Uh, so maybe that's why I wasn't so inspirational. But I want to say that even now, and uh, it's it's been so tough. Uh, this is the toughest thing I've ever done for sure. Well, sure, you know, we opened the chiropractic college from scratch, pretty much. But this is the toughest thing I've ever done. Just do a PhD. That so many of, you know, of people like you have done before. But I think it's really, really challenging. But it's also super rewarding. I've never done anything that rewarding. So maybe that's a tiny bit of motivation that I could, <laughs> I could give people. Well, yeah, I mean, but it has to be real and, uh, your experience is real. And, and that's why I love having, having other researchers on. Everybody's got a different take on things. Everybody's got different advice. And, uh, so yeah, totally. I, I understand where you're coming from. I, you know, maybe over a beer or something we could talk about, uh, sure. <laughs> some, yeah. some of these things, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there were several times I was thinking about throwing in the towel. Uh, I think it's only normal at some point during a PhD to have some of these thoughts. Uh, of course, m most of us don't do that uh, because we're motivated to get it done. And, and, uh, and it's exciting. You spend all this time and, and effort on projects, uh, but just like you do in practice, you know, some, some things in practice lead to great success and, and other things you spend a lot of time on, they, they don't. So, uh, you know, it's, it's the same kind of thing just applied in a, you know, a research setting as opposed to practice. So cool. Well, Carlos, thanks so much for coming on. This was, uh, really, really, uh, a great talk. I, I've enjoyed myself tremendously. I've enjoyed so much. I, I can't even start telling you. Thank you so much. This is the first podcast that I I participate in as a as a scientist, uh, if we can put it that way. So uh, it, it's been so fun. Loved it, Dean. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Chiropractic Science with Dr. Carlos Gevers. I hope you learned as much as I did in this interview, and I look forward to bringing you more great chiropractic science in the future. <laughs>